Hi, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan. I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest on this episode is Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich. She is the author of The Fact of a Body, A Murder, and a Memoir. It's just out from Flatiron Books, and I'm delighted to be talking with you today, Alexandria. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you very much. This is a really interesting mix because it's a combination of personal memoir and reportage sort of veering into true crime territory. So it's as much about somebody else's life as it is about yours, but also very much about why that other person's life is something that you felt compelled to dig into. And let's start by talking about how you discovered the subject uh, or one of the two subjects of this book, Ricky Langley and his story. So when I was in law school, I knew that I wanted to fight the death penalty. I had gone to law school to fight the death penalty, and that was what I planned to do with my life. And I took a internship in Louisiana my very first summer. And I took this internship in part because on the phone during the interview for it, they had asked me whether I would be able to defend a pedophile. And I had grown up being abused, and to me that question was kind of the ultimate question of just how committed am I to my ideals to fighting the death penalty because I knew a pedophile would be really hard for me and I, I said yes I can I absolutely can thinking that if I really oppose the death penalty I must be able to defend even the person who was most difficult for me and I got to Louisiana and the very first thing that happened was that they showed me this man's confession videotape um, a man who was a pedophile who'd been convicted of murder previously and uh, that was Ricky Langley and as I watched his confession videotape I was overcome by this incredibly strong feeling of wanting him to die. And it was because my, my memories of my past were kind of colliding with my ideals in that moment. But a very curious thing happened, which is that as soon as the tape was finished, I couldn't remember his name anymore. It was just wiped from my memory. And that said to me that there was more going on there, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, so that kept happening whenever I encountered his case. I would forget his name moments later. And about 10 years later, I got the first set of records from his case. Not so much because I thought I was going to write about them. I actually had no idea that I would write about them. But because I just kind of wanted to put his story to rest inside me, I kept thinking about him. I kept being haunted by his story. And there was clearly something there that was hitting my own. Um, I should also say that watched his tape, I also learned that the mother of the child he had killed, Jeremy Guillory, his mother, Lorelai Guillory, had actually taken the stand at the trial and pleaded for Ricky Langley's life, pleaded for the life of the man who had killed her son. Whereas I was having this reaction of wanting him to die. So that really challenged me to think about and kind of haunted me for years. And eventually I, like I said, started learning about the case. And in a way, too, it also turned you into a writer in a very critical way. In that, I mean, as you said, this was something that you learned about during a summer internship at a law firm while you were in law school. And I don't think it's spoilers to say that at the end of this, you couldn't be a lawyer anymore, you felt. I couldn't be. And truthfully, like, I had always written. So I had written from the time I was a little kid. My father says the first thing I wrote was at age two, a song. <laughs> I had always written, but I had always written fiction. I had never written um, anything from my own life. I think also in part because I was afraid that I would write something about what had happened in my past. And that summer in Louisiana, I started writing fiction again because I was learning all these things and watching all these things that I had no other way to process. Fiction wasn't actually related to anything around me concretely. It's more just that I needed that realm of, of the imagination and I needed that realm of words. And so when I returned to law school after that summer, I started taking fiction classes at night. 
uh, going to law school during the day and taking fiction classes at night. And when I went to school for writing, finally, it was initially for fiction. I really didn't want to write about this case, but I was haunted by it. And I think sort of we don't really choose our topics. They choose us. You mentioned just now that you'd always written about fiction and never anything about your life. And you said specifically because you were afraid you might write about this. Yeah. One of the things that's very clear as you do write about it is that your family was also terrified by the prospect, simply that anybody would speak of this. Yes. And I think maybe that's one of the things that perhaps makes a person into a writer, this sense of silence, the sense of really strong silence. And I sometimes think that a lot of memoir, um, you've talked to a lot of memoirists, and I, I, to me it often feels reading memoir like a lot of memoirs are spoken against silence, that there's this sort of heavy silence that comes down, but people feel the need to articulate what happened. This isn't a passive silence either. This is a very active and aggressive silence in which your grandfather molested you and your sister and when that came out, your family basically compartmentalized that yes. and said, okay, it's not going to happen anymore, so just don't talk about it. Yes. It's happened, it's done, just let it go. Don't tell his wife, don't tell your brother, just shut up about it. So, you know, when you're talking about writing against silence, it's not it's not just this thing that is silent. And it's, it's something that is very actively not spoken about consciously not spoken about. I think we often want to make the past prettier than it was. And so one of the things I was kind of struggling in this within this book and writing about the past was how do I be true to the things that happened that were so difficult? How do I finally give them a place to live? Let's just say that they happened. And yet when I'm doing that, how do I also not lose track of the good things that happened? One of the things I thought a lot about with this book was how to portray the past in as complex a way as I experience it, and I feel it was. That applies to, not just to, to your personal history, but I think also to your approach to Ricky Langley's story and, and Jeremy's story, in that, you know, this is a kind of story where it's very easy to paint villains and victims. And you want to, to really say, like, well, why did this happen? And not just, you know, why did this person do this terrible thing, but what is going on in... in, in in Ricky Langley's life, you know, what has he been struggling with? There's a distinction between sympathy and empathy mm -hmm. and understanding. It's possible to not at all feel sympathetic about what Ricky Langley did, but to, to feel empathetic about his life circumstances. Absolutely. And that was one of the things that I would say was most shocking and difficult for me as I started to learn about him. So when I began researching Ricky Langley's life, I was so horrified by the very idea of him that I couldn't even remember his name, right? He was so horrifying to me that that just was a total sort of blank out of my part. And also, I couldn't remember anything else really of my grandfather, or at least I didn't think about anything else with my grandfather other than the fact that he had molested me. Those memories were so strong that they kind of blotted out the rest of who he was. And so when I started learning about Ricky, and all of a sudden I was reading these records of him as a teenager trying to get help and trying to turn himself in, saying, help, I think I might be a pedophile. Help, how do I deal with this? How do I not do this? And how much he had struggled and how much there are these records of him for years going back trying to get hope or trying to imagine that he can be somebody else or live a different life, I started to feel this empathy for him. Not sympathy, as you're saying, but empathy. That was really hard. It was very disturbing to realize that I was empathizing with him, but I had to because he had once been this teenager 
who was imagining a different future for himself and kind of desperately trying to be somebody else. And that made me think of my grandfather. That made me try to imagine what it was like for him to know who he was and to be a loving grandfather in so many moments during the day, in so many moments of our lives. And then at night, do this terrible, terrible thing. Um, and I really wanted to tell the story in a way that allowed both of them to be both, because I think that's honest. You write about how, not just how, as you've just said, the memories of the abuse overwhelmed your overall memory of your grandfather, that it's like that your your memory impression of your grandfather before this process was simply, he abused me. But it's simply more than just like, oh, these are the only things I remember. You write about the real physical effect of how these memories come up at other moments in your life. And yeah, as a metaphor, it's pretty much like a hard drive freezing in the middle. That's that's what happens to your mind and your yes. body. Although I will say something that really shocked the heck out of me was that it hasn't actually happened since I finished the book. And that was so strange. So when I was... Yeah. yeah. That was actually what I was going to ask is that, so how do you write about that? Well, so, I mean, I, and I struggled with that, right? How do you write about this white, hot sort of blanket out that happens to you? How do you write about nothing? I teach memoir writing now, and a lot of my students ask, how do you write about disassociation? And I really struggled with that for a while, because how do you put words to an experience that is all about not having words? Reading other memoirists really helped me. I think um, Lisa Johnson does it beautifully in The Other Side. Kelly Groom does it gorgeously in I Wore an Ocean in the Shape of a Dress. And these were writers before me who had managed to put words to these experiences and I vividly remember being at an arts colony where I was working on this book or rather I was supposed to be working on this book but I was struggling so much with the emotions it was bringing up that I was kind of avoiding it and what I was struggling with is exactly what you're saying how do I write about this feeling and why do I even have to and I was reading I wore the ocean in the shape of a girl that's what a title is I wore the ocean in the shape of a girl I kind of hit this scene where she wrote about it so beautifully that I got up, closed the book, put it down, and was like, if she had the guts to write that, I have no business avoiding this, and kind of went to my desk and started to write, which always feels to me like a high compliment to the book, to a book when it makes you write. Of course, there's always this cliche about memoir writing that it's cathartic. So let's explode that in terms of what you've said earlier about how it's like, how you haven't had those kinds of dissociative experiences since writing this book, but that's different from catharsis. It's different from catharsis. When I was working on this book, I cannot tell you how many people said to me, oh, you're writing a memoir? That must be so therapeutic. And I would always want to kind of bite back at them, not if you're doing it right, right? If you're doing it right, you're dredging up all this stuff and you have to go into the complexity of it that maybe you, you didn't force yourself to think about in the past. And that is not really therapeutic. In fact, it's often deeply disturbing and unsettling. And there were times working on this book when I sort of just could not be around other humans. And that was why I would go to an arts colony because it would really drag me under. And so for years, I just felt very strongly opposed to that statement that it was therapeutic. Um, yeah, and, and then once I finished, I was, it actually was. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, and meanwhile, your father is telling, you know, everybody he knows. It's like, oh, yeah, she's writing about the past, and she's the only one who remembers it this way. Right, which was interesting because he said that only once, thankfully, and I am very grateful to the rest of my family that they basically responded the next day, no, she's not, and they acknowledged it because my family had always been silent about the past, but until he said that, no one had ever even implied that it didn't happen, right? Because we, we had all lived through it together. And so I was very grateful to them that the day after they, they were like, no, 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 she's not the only one. You're also very upfront as you're writing about Ricky Langley's history as a writer. You, you step back 
you're very much aware, let's say, that there's there's a framework of historical events and real people around which you are constructing a creative narrative, which is not to say that you're making things up because you're basing it in a historical reality. But when you're saying like, well, this is how this is how I see things. Like, for example, you don't know what somebody was wearing on a right, given day. Exactly. And so you say, it's like, oh, I picture her looking like this. And, yeah. you know, you'll be afraid about where you're, where else in your life you're pulling those memories from. And I think that's a, that was an interesting strategic decision. So the way that developed was that when I first got the first set of 8,000 pages of Ricky's court record, and he was tried three times over 20 years, so there were about 30,000 pages that I ended up finding, I thought that I would find just this kind of clean narrative that was all about the facts of what had happened. And that when I had first watched his confession videotape and I had been so overtaken by memories of my own past, that that was kind of just like my failure not to leave behind who I was and just enter this pure space of the law. And then I got the records and I realized that as I read them, that what was happening was that everybody had seen the case through the lens of their own past. The jury foreman had looked at Ricky and he'd seen his brother-in-law, the lead defense attorney had seen his father, the victim, even the victim's mother had saw it through the lens of the past. And I realized, actually, that I wanted to write a narrative that captured that, that we see other people through the lenses of our own lives. And we also come to understand ourselves through by looking at other people. And so I decided to kind of, that what I could do was give the reader my memories and show them how I was looking at Ricky's life and seeing these things from my past. And that seemed more honest than pretending that I was constructing a narrative that was like coming from no particular view. Yeah, and I think that that's something that is very common in true crime is this sort of sense that, oh, we're just coming to the substory objectively and for no particular reason. It's just an interesting crime. When it's like, no, let's just be upfront about the fact that there are compelling emotional or psychological reasons, whatever they are, that draw you, an author, personally to that particular story, whoever you are as an author. I mean, in your case, it's because Ricky Langley's story had, as we've discussed, those immediate connections to your personal history. For somebody else, that kind of connection might be different. But let's be upfront about the fact that it's there. Absolutely. Two things about that. One, when I was working on this book, I would sometimes sort of cheekily say uh, when describing it, oh, well, it's like in cold blood if Capote had been honest about his personal stake in telling the story. Because that's a case in which he wasn't honest about it. And I love that book madly, but I think it's dangerous not to be honest about it. Um, and we saw it influence the shape of that book. And the other thing I would say is that also one of the big things that drove me as I wrote this was that we built ourselves a legal system that pretends that we don't do that. You know, that layering of subjectivities is happening in every law case. And yet we built a legal system that pretends that that's not, that pretends that some kind of objective analysis is coming out of the trial when actually the story of the crime is being made up of the interactions that people have with it. And I, I wanted to write a, a book that would capture that feeling. How much interviewing did you do in, in terms of that? Zero. I really thought about well, zero that went directly into the book. I, I certainly asked people questions about the death penalty. I asked people questions about what death row was like to write things in that scene. But I didn't interview any of the people in the book. And the reason was simply that I wanted to tell a narrative of, about how we make stories out of the past. And in this case, the record of the past I, wanted, I was going off of was kind of what people had been exposed to at the time, which was all that stuff that was in the files, those 30,000 pages of files. I didn't want to ask people what they thought about it now, because that wasn't what the case was, what, wasn't what the book record was about. Since it's come out, have you heard from people involved in the Ricky Langley case about your account of it or your, your portrayal of it? 
not yet. Actually, when we're when we're taping this, I don't know whether it's okay to say this, but when we're taping this, the book hasn't come out okay. yet. Okay. Um, so not yet. I have spoken with his lawyers separately in the past, but not yet. I'll be curious how they what they think of it. I mean, I ask that primarily because it's because of the dual nature of the book. It seems like an interesting contrast. I mean, certainly your family has known for a long time that this project or one very much like it has been coming. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons with Ricky's story and the story of this case that I wanted to use the narratives that were already out there because not so much in the U.S., but certainly in the U.K., a lot of stories of this case have have already been told. There's a play about the case that ran for a while that has actually run all over the world. I think the most recent production was in Pakistan. And... It's been on BBC, BBC Radio. The mother of the child who was murdered, she went on Sally, Je- Sally Jesse Raphael, that talk show back in the day after the murder. Um, and so there's a lot of retellings of this story out there. Um, and I wanted to look at the story, like, because I'm looking at the stories we make out of the past, I wanted to draw from those. You mentioned before that you know, you'd always sort of considered yourself a fiction writer. Um, that was where your creative energy had gone into and, and your aspirations were until this project really sort of got a hold on you. Where do you see yourself in terms of as a writer? What are the kinds of things that are really compelling to you now? You've mentioned that you're teaching memoir writing, so obviously that's on your mind a lot. It is on my mind a lot. Um, And I think in general, I'm pretty obsessed right now with the question of how we make a story out of the past. What I've been doing more recently is I was in Cambodia doing um, doing interviews at the International Criminal Tribunal there, uh, because that's a very active case, a very rather a very active um, question now of how a story will be made out of the past. And I was also sitting in on trainings for teachers in Cambodia, secondary school teachers, um, where they were being trained in how to teach the genocide. And I know even my use of that word is controversial, but I'm going to use it. And in many cases, it meant that they actually were being taught about the genocide for the first time, uh, because many of the 20, 20 to 22 year olds in the country now, they think of it sort of as a rumor. And I don't know where I'm going with this as a writer, if, if I'm going anywhere with that as a writer, or if it's just something I'm, I'm sort of very interested in right now. But both the nonfiction and the fiction I find myself writing right now are circling around these questions about what we do with the past and how we make a narrative of the past. This book very much is taking the legal narrative and kind of exploding it. One of the ways we make a narrative about the past is this legal, is the legal system, but I want to kind of point out that that's not an objective process. I want to peel back the process of how that happens. What I seem to be interested in right now is, well, what happens when at the time of the events that happened, the legal system isn't there to make a narrative? How else is this narrative being made? Which actually alludes to something that you touch upon in this. The point which you talk about, I'm I'm going to paraphrase here, the idea that it's like, well, we can talk about Ricky's story because Ricky got caught. And we can't talk about so many other stories, at least not in the legal sense, because people like your grandfather, at least outside the very narrow confines of your immediate family, he didn't get caught. Nobody knows this story until today when you've put it forward. It really strikes me always that the laws we have to try to address sexual abuse, like sex offender registration, since those laws have been put in place, as far as we know as a society, the actual rate of sexual abuse has not dropped at all. And there's pretty much a consensus out there that says, well, that's because the people who commit the most sexual abuse aren't getting caught in these laws because actually they're family members. And I think as a teacher of memoir, actually, one of the things with teaching memoir is that you can hover over a lot of people's lives and you start to notice just how prevalent this is. 
and this is going to sound very strange, this next thing I'm going to say, but I was very, very far into the book, into writing the book, before I realized that my grandfather was a criminal, that he had committed a crime. I had literally never thought about it that way. I had thought of it as this horrible thing that happened to me and in my own family, but I had never thought of it as a crime. And that question of who we allow ourselves to see as criminal, which I think affected Ricky Langley's life in a large way and also affected my grandfather's life in a large way in, both, in, in two very different ways, just really struck me as something that we don't talk about enough. Well, we are definitely talking about it in this book. It's a really powerful opening statement. Uh, it is called The Fact of a Body, A Murder and a Memoir, and I have been talking with its author, Alexandria marzano Lesnovich. You've been listening to Life Stories, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll go into the iTunes store and give it a bunch of stars and give it a nice review. The more and more of you people do that, then the easier it is for other people to find it. And as you subscribe, you'll also be alerted when new episodes come online as well. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Take care.